0: Okay, Welcome, guys. I I think that um, we're actually getting close to our 100th episode, which is kind of cool, kind of mind-blowing. So one of our most successful show types is when we do this open Q&A thing, Uh, and it's really hard. uh, I I do all my scheduling on Friday mornings like around 5 a.m. or something like that, and um, it's really hard to sometimes think of really inspiring topics for Wednesday class, but... This is always a a great way to um, have discussions because a lot of times uh, people's questions make the best shows. So that's what we have today. We already have a few questions typed in the chat box, but um, the whole point of this show is for you guys to uh, bring up questions or conversation points, and we're going to sort of pick up on them and uh, and work on them. So I'm just going to change to video view here. Maybe Carl will join us in a second. Um, Excellent. So let's get started. Uh, We'll just start right at the top and work through it. Uh, Here's a great great starting off point. What is the value of participating in individual competitions? So, John, is this rhetorical, or are you actually questioning whether or not there's a value? Um, Because um, I think there's a huge value uh, to solo competition, and... The, the reason being is, the, I think the number one value is that it's a way for us to develop and improve our playing and musicianship. So uh, bagpiping, the deal with bagpiping is there are very few venues where you can play bagpipes in public, where people are actually truly interested in your musical output. Yeah, and John says there's an enormous expense if you have to travel far distances. Yeah, I mean, um, myself uh, and many other people, at you know, playing at high levels, I mean, we've gone to Scotland and traveled all through, you know, the highlands of Scotland in order to compete. So there's a huge expense. But think of it from this angle, which is how many venues can you actually play your pipes in public where people are actually interested in the fine points of your musical output? Think about that. So, on parade, right, I mean, I think 95% of all people that listen to bagpipes on parade uh, are just listening sort of for the spectacle of it and, you know, uh, to maybe kind of hear what it sounds like. But people aren't really, they're not thinking to themselves, boy, you know, uh, that pipe band had really excellent, uh, you know, clean note transitions and boy, the tone was really superb. People aren't saying that. And the same goes for pretty much anything else. So if you play at a wedding or a funeral, granted, you can't sound terrible or people aren't gonna like it, but they're not going to be closely evaluating your playing. Okay, so there are very, very few venues for this. And solo competing, I think the real value there is that um, that is its express purpose, is just how good can we make this performance, and then we compete against other folks You know, so for me, it's a huge motivating thing, and needless to say, I need to master my fundamentals. Uh, And then Julie points out, um, and there's very other few, very few other venues where it's acceptable to drink beer at 9:30 a.m., which is, uh, you know, an excellent (laughs) point, an excellent point for those of us who are over the age, over the legal drinking age. That is, of course. And even so, I still question that that judgment call there, Julie. But there you go. So, uh, so yeah, that, I think that's the main value. I, th- I think it's huge. Um, it's very motivating. And then for me, at least, once I got the taste of my first big victory, I was hooked. Um, I won. I won one event in grade four, uh, and then I gotten above grade level in another one, but I didn't win. And then the, the third and last one I did... It's so Actually, I did that in reverse order. But the, the very first one I did, I got killed, and it was frustrating. But then my first outing in grade three, when I finally had a March, a Stress Day Reel, and a P-Brock, and I might have even had 6-8, I can't remember. It was at the old Delco Games. And I went out, and I think... I could be wrong, but I think I won everything. I think I took straight first in my first grade three, and that was, that was, that was it for me. I was hooked, uh, and it was really cool, a uh, really cool experience. And then, what, you know, and then, then there's the thrill of the hunt as well, John. So not only is it good for developing our skill and getting great feedback from top pipers, um, once, you get, once you get in the mix and you start getting some prizes, then you start to get hooked, and uh, it's, it's really kind of cool. Um, so there you go. Uh, let's move on to the next question here. But John, that was a great starting up question. Here's one from Don, sort of related. Is it bad for him to hang around and listen to your comp- uh, competition in a solo event after you've played? I'm not sure what you mean. Are you asking if it's good to hang around and listen to other people compete? Or are you asking if you made a re- if you made a recording of yourself to stand around and listen to a recording of yourself, <laughs> because those are two very different things, yeah. So, yeah, you should absolutely listen to other people compete. There's nothing, uh, there's nothing more educational than that, right? Yeah, and Heather points out you can listen to other grades. I, it, it always baffles me. It baffles me when I compete in the professional grade, and there's three or four other top top pipers playing. And there's like nobody watching. Uh that's crazy. I used to watch all the time. That's like the name of the game. So uh so Don, a great question. You should absolutely be watching other competitions, picking up stuff, learning stuff, um, listening, especially the people that um, are winning in your grade, you gotta make sure you listen to them and see what they're doing. Figure out how to beat them. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question, Don, because so many people I think uh wonder that. Like should I hang around and listen or or what? But yeah, it's it's performing, it's a performance, it's a performing art. Um, and the good news is it might make the other competitors nervous if you listen. So that'll help throw them off their game, right, Don? That's, we really want to try that. Um, it's probably bad... It's bad sportsmanship to make funny faces and throw things at people as they're playing, but to just be there and be an intimidating presence, I highly recommend. Yeah. There you go. Like, you know, give them the evil eye. Wear, you can wear funny hats, right? Like, where if you wear a cowboy hat or something with, like, a stuffed animal on the brim. Just stand there. You know, tons of people will be breaking down all over the place. You'll, you'll win first place. That will be great. Yeah. No, we have to be good, you have to be good sportsmanship about it. But I do know that sometimes, especially, you know, um, yeah, sometimes I think that people do get nervous when other people watch. So uh so yeah, do lots of watching. That's what I say. You know, as long as it's in law as long as it's uh, you know, in excellent sportsmanship. Yeah, don't frown and shake your head slowly. And you know, it's bad when you're watching a, a friend compete and you wince when they make a mistake. You can't do that, right? Gotta keep it cool and not be a distraction. Usually you can stand far enough back that it's not gonna be like a big issue. Um There are some games that my favorite one. that is loud. Is that super loud to everyone else or just to me? Holy cow! Okay, it scared the bejesers out of me. All right, Carl, go ahead, man.
1: Yeah, mine's really low. Um, (laughs) uh, One of my favorite things to do when listening to other people is is to kind of stand around in a group and have my back mostly to. To them so that I can hear, but I'm, I'm, they're not gonna, yeah, I, I don't ever want to make them feel uncomfortable. I, you know, I want them to, to be as, as comfortable as possible. So, I kind of do like to do a three-quarter turn and, and, uh. When I listen to competitors, like when Eric Ollett's competing, I do this. (laughs) Like that. I make sure he can see me do it. So you know, I, I kind of just turn a shoulder, but I'm still listening. And and you know, if, if it was a good performance, I, I try and make a point of going up after and saying, "Hey, it was, was really n- nice. I enjoyed that." Um, but yeah, I try to be l- as as unintrusive as possible. Yeah, just, yeah. Andrew doesn't uh, no, I don't that? No,
0: I'm just kidding. I do. I struggle with that. You know. It's my uh, it's like it's my need to win. You know, got 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 to try to win anyway. Uh, and of course, uh, it, it was all—it was all—you um, know—it all came together with a big karmic smackdown when I uh, moved to British Columbia, and uh, the best I could ever, ever in a million years hope to get was like third, you know, because you got guys like Alan Bevan and Andrew Bonar and stuff—they're always playing and they're just r- so awesome. So, so yeah, you can only be a wise guy for so long. So, anyway, great questions, guys, uh, great questions. Next question from uh, from Don in the list. He says, his high A seems pretty sharp. Is there such a thing as covering the hole too much with tape? He's already covered a third of the hole. Should I go to half covered? Okay, the answer to that question is, yes. Yes, there is such a thing as too much tape, especially on the high hand. Now, we know that uh, we... We know, or you can sort of hear when you play bagpipes, right? The bottom hand notes, like low G, low A, and just in general, notes on the bottom hand tend to have more volume and projection than the notes on the high hand. And so, when we tape the high hand, you know, it's, it's pretty straightforward that the more you tape a note, the less projection it's going to have, the less volume it's going to have. Uh, and for the record, I think it has less harmonics, too, the more tape that we use. Okay, so um, when we tape a note on the high hand, we're, we're even further differentiating between the loud bottom hand and the softer top hand. So any tape on the high hand is bad. Okay, now, obviously, a little bit of tape on every note is good because then we can move around. But as soon as you get to a third of the whole, you want to do anything you can to fix that problem. So the good news is, with a sharp high A, um, raising the read is almost always the way to go. Uh, It has to do with the graduated tuning effect, uh, which I won't go into depth on today, and sort of one of those uh, key dojo things that you learn at Dojo University, and we do a lot of classes on that. Okay? So if your high A seems pretty sharp, um, that's a great opportunity to raise the read up Try and rebalance it. You're going to have to move some tape on other notes, but that's the way to go. Gary's saying, given the wavelengths of the upper hand, any taping is proportionally greater than taping on the lower hand. Yeah, I guess, maybe. I haven't really experienced that, but it could be true. yeah, if that's
2: the only note that, that, that you have
0: taped, that uh, could be problematic. Um, but but try raising it a little bit. Are you sure it's not flat? Are you sure that it's sharp? Um, and then yeah, if it's true that it's the only note that's sharp, uh, it might be tough. But it's pretty rare. Usually the usually you could get away with just bringing it up, balancing it out. Um, so, so give it a go and see what happens. Yeah. Um, I think going back to what Gary was just saying, wavelengths and taping is proportionally greater on the high hand. Uh, that might, may or may not be true. Just just throwing it out there, taping is always trial and error for me. So, uh, so I just don't really know if that's true or not. So I'm, I'm moving tape a little bit down or a little bit up. Or if it's way out, I'll move it quite a bit down or quite a bit up. And then I usually, you know, either go too far or not far enough. Remember, it's always sort of searching around trying to find the best spot. So uh, it's an interesting thought uh, there for sure. Okay. Uh, so yes, there's definitely such a thing as too much tape. So many pipe ends out there in the world are going out on the field and competing with, like, huge, huge portions of their high hand taped down. Don't do that. Raise the reed, balance it out, rebalance it, figure it out. Don't end up in the in the reed seat too much with, with not enough tape. So that's one of the big things I learned from Jack Lee. Because I, I used to be, you know, I, I, I've always had a great ear. I, as you know, I don't really believe in having a great ear. But I always had a great aptitude for tuning and for getting it. Uh, I'm trying to avoid saying I had a great year. Uh, But um, that was one of the big things I learned from Jack Lee, which is we have to minimize the tape on the top because we already have this big discrepancy. So so there you go. Next question. Great question so far, guys. I'm trying to be encouraging so we get lots more questions. Julie says, could you review which grace notes are played before the beat and which one should fall On the beat. Okay, that is an interesting question. Um, I'm not, Julie, can you specify what you mean? Are you referring to grace notes or embellishments? Okay. Yeah. Grace notes, right? Grace notes are infinitely small things. So, if you have a grace note written on a beat note, then that's exactly where the grace note goes. It doesn't go before or after. It goes exactly on the beat. Okay, so that that's, you know, so what you asked in, in reference to grace notes didn't make um, a ton of sense, but what uh, embellishments, on the other hand, Okay, we can definitely go into that. So, here's a deal with embellishments. Hmm. Hmm. So, I'm just going to try and find. I'm just going to try and find I have an embellishment guide somewhere here let me load in let me load in a PowerPoint that I showed the other day just bear with me here folks while I load that in And just converting this will take a second. But uh, there are some good examples of this for you, Julie. Um, so that's a great question. Just waiting for this thing to load. Wait for it. Keep waiting. Don't stop waiting for it. Let's see, while, I, while I'm waiting, I'm going to prove some of these other questions. Okay, here we go. Can everybody see this? Um, uh, let's see, we're going to embellishments. Okay. So here we go with beat place notes, uh, beat placement for embellishments. Okay. So um, here, here's the bottom line, Julie, okay, which is the vast majority, I'm just going to make this bigger, the vast majority of embellishments occur on beats or off beats. Okay, so what I mean by that is the vast majority of them start on the beat. Generally, the first step of an embellishment will be placed on the beat. Okay, so let's look at some of these. So here's a C doubling, okay? And next to the C doubling, I have the steps written out. Okay, so we we can come from any note, and then when we play... um, when we play the doubling, the first step goes on the beat. So the G grace note to the C is the one that goes on the beat, and then the D grace note follows after. right? So if I play my chanter, and let's say I'm coming from B, right? Ta-da, the G grace note. By the way, in the book Rhythmic Fingerwork, there's some great um, great exercises to help reinforce this. E-doubling, same thing. The the beginning of the embellishment comes on the beat. Right? Right? And then so on and so forth. Same with the high A-doubling. It's a little bit trickier on low G movements. This is how we teach it at the dojo, though, which is the same general thing. The first step of the movement is going to fall on the foot or on the beat. (laughs) Kevin, great question. Would you say that the majority of the time, G grace notes fall on the beat? Uh, I would not say that, Kevin. I would say, all the time, G grace notes fall on the beat. You'll never see a G grace note that's not on a beat. Now, uh, the one possible exception, which I don't consider an exception, is uh, when you have a tune with offbeats, like a 2-4 march, or um, some 6-8 marches, uh, you'll see a G grace note on the offbeat and the downbeat. You'll see it in both places, uh, but you'll never see it anywhere else. It's one of the dirty little secrets about piping. Anyway, here's a, just a complete Julie's question here. We play low G movements like grips, terlouettes, and d throws with the first step on the beat. Um, other schools of thought, or what you might call the mainstream school of thought, will play them in different spots. So the mainstream school of thought would be the end of the movement would end. So that's the difference between, you know, like, let's take Scott and the Braid. that's the mainstream way (laughs) where the end of the terlue starts on the beat now I'm going to wait for the beat before I even play it (laughs) here comes another one Okay? Um, and so that that's how I approach it. I find the difference is very trivial and negligible in most cases. But then in some cases, the mainstream way of teaching the movement is not very musical. And that comes in in a lot of Bay playing or 2-4 March playing. And that's just an opinion. And we get into that a lot when we lecture about this at Dojo U. Uh, but that's, that's the basics of it, Julie. I hope that helps. And then uh, rhythmic finger work is sort of the holy bible of at least the mainstream way of approaching embellishments. So even if you play the dojo method like I do, I'm still very well versed in the other method. And by the way, if you have real control over what you're doing, you could put the beat anywhere you want in your embellishment if you really understand what embellishments are made of. Cameron says, I just like switching between bands that play grips on the beat and bands that end them on the beat. <laughs> yeah. Um, see, I, I don't worry about it too much, Cameron, because it's it's pretty simple for me to switch back and forth. But for those of us who are, you know, developing our technique, you're right. It's very tricky. That's why everybody should just do it this way. Uh, no, but that's, a, that's an important thing. That's a very difficult thing, right, in all seriousness. Um, if... If one person plays it this way, with this on the beat, and the other person plays it ending on the beat, what you'll actually have is two complete movements at two completely different times. Which is, of course, very bad for unison. And then that's right. If you're going to play in a band that's serious about creating unison, everybody has to agree on the same way to play each, each movement.
1: I like it. You should orchestrate double grips in every tune. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, it's crazy. Uh, it, it really is. And so uh, it's a very teachable moment. So, uh, Julie, I hope that helps. Uh, I hope that helps you a little bit there. We are, um, we're coming out with um, a new course that's all about this kind of stuff, all about all these fingerwork fundamentals. Uh, we're coming out with a course over the next few months that's going to go into that in a lot of depth. So stay tuned for that. That's right. Les, you're totally right about that. Here's a perfect example. Uh, You know, uh, a perfect example is, let's take, uh, well, I'll use the SFU pipe band as an example. Um, You know, just because I've played in the band and I have some experience... Playing with them, which is um, when when I was pipe major of Oren Moore, we had a very specific way we approached every movement. If I wanted if I wanted to go back and play, provided they had space for me, uh, I would have to adjust the way I was doing things in order to create unison in that band. Or else I'd you know I'd be sitting my butt on the bench, right? So we always have to be able to make that adjustment, which makes Julie's question. Really, really relevant and important, and that's a really excellent question to ask. Julie was following up by saying, "So it's more of a style than a hard and fast rule." Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think there are two there are two main styles, right, um, that I'm aware of, which is we can start all the movements on the beat. Um, or we can do the more mainstream way where different steps are on the beat. Julie, I, let's, let's change that. Let's say it's more, it's a decision. It's a musical decision rather than a hard and fast rule. That's what I would say. So in the vast majority of situations, I find it to be more musical to wait for the downbeat to start the embellishment. And so I make the musical choice to play it that way. And then I also make the choice to teach my students that way. At least first and foremost, until they have the full control that they need. Ashby said, "I left Oranmore." No, I didn't leave Oranmore. Uh, the Oranmore Pipe Band became part of the Stuart Highlanders Pipe Band. So I'm no longer the I'm no longer the pipe major, I'm Just a member of the band. Um, so let's see. Julie says, are the low G embellishments the only ones where the choice exists? Well, uh, you have the choice to do whatever you want, Julie. Uh, You could do whatever you want. And uh, sometimes I make weird choices with all sorts of different embellishments. Uh, But it's very difficult to argue, Julie, that the other types of embellishments should be played any other way, right? So the the type A ones... (laughs) right? Those ones pretty much have to be played on the beat. If we didn't, things are going to sound weird, right? (laughs) Right? Yeah, it ends up sounding pretty
1: gross, right?
0: And and besides
1: which, all of those type A doublings if you played those to somebody who is completely uneducated in bagpipe and told them to tap their foot with it, they're naturally and automatically going to start tapping on the G grace note. So it it really, yeah, (laughs) it doesn't work there.
0: Yeah, so Julie, so yes. So low G are the only ones where there's any debate because the other high G grace note style uh, embellishments are just, you know, clearly, obviously, uh, you know, one way. So yeah, awesome questions, and congratulations for congratulations for having those questions. Those are the real good ones to have. They're gonna, you know, uh, that's gonna help you be successful. Um, yeah, you might say, hmm, I don't. I, I prefer the way Jim McGilvery does the low G embellishments in rhythmic fingerwork. Awesome. You know, that, that's a choice that you you have to make. I present my case pretty. Uh, Pretty convincingly, uh, and a lot of dojo u classes. So, um, but uh, but yeah, it's a great. De- should have like a debate or something. Uh, but and, and I'm sure that um, Julie says how does Stuart Hanus play them? Well, um, you know, they they play them al- almost. I don't know. I think it's pretty much everything they're doing embellishment-wise is the same as Orin Moore was doing. Um, you know, so it's been, you know, and that, that's not a coincidence, right? I mean, the, the, the two bands are were both such high-level bands. It's not a coincidence that they came to certain conclusions about how to get the best unison and musicality combined. So, yeah, I think everything's been the same. Light d-throws, start stuff on the beat, you know, no problem. Uh, so, awesome question. All right, we've got to scroll back up. Cameron says, yeah, Cameron, I want to skip this one, uh, the common website one, um, just because I want to avoid um, tons of websites being thrown up on, on here. Um, yeah, I'll, although what I will do, Cameron, is um, I'll, I'll tell you some of my favorite websites um yeah you, you know what i mean it's one of those it's one of those uh one of those business things where uh, if people start talking about all the websites they love and hate on a dojo U thing it tends to be it tends to become a conflict of interest in a hurry so uh we've we've gotten in trouble more than once on that so we uh let's avoid that folks if we could um but here are some of my uh my favorite sites. The best place to talk about piping and to discuss piping is this uh, thing called um, Facebook. If you guys have ever heard of that site, um, there's lots of lots of good discussion happening on Facebook, and um, <laughs> you know you and your friends can talk about all sorts of stuff. Um, let's see, the best sheet music site. There are two awesome sheet music sites. Uh, that I go to all the time and I always refer people to, which is LeeAndSonsBagPipes.com. I think that's it. Uh, apologies if that's not quite it. But yeah, Lee Jack Lee and his sons have a bagpiping company. Now, one of the amazing features of the site is their tune library. Um, whenever, you, whenever you're going to get a new solo tune, I highly recommend purchasing it from them. It comes with the music, and the mp3, um, and nobody's paying me to say this, mean, it should be, but they're not. Uh, no one's paying me to say this, but it's a great site, um, really, really good, and uh, Jack Lee has done all the settings himself, uh, and he's, in, trust me, he's played all these tunes. He's like a tune machine, that guy, so, um, so you're going to get a really awesome, uh, a really awesome version of the tune. Sometimes you get versions of tunes and there's weird doublings and grace notes that don't really make a whole lot of sense. Um, And you can definitely avoid that. And then the other website that I really like for sheet music is pipetunes.ca. And that's uh, another Jim McGilvery production there. Um, So that's the best place for sheet music. Uh, Let's see... Ah, a great v- website to visit is dojouniversity.com. Have you guys heard about that site? It's a great site to visit. I'm trying to think, Carl, like, what are some of the other websites that we go to? Yeah, it's just one of those things. Yeah, uh, Tune, Tune Index. Uh, I don't know if there is a reliable Tune ind- Index. Yeah. Um so yeah. Let's uh Cameron, sorry about that. I mean if you'd like to email us, uh, we can we can do that. It's just difficult to get into broadcasting other people's uh you know, websites and businesses and stuff. So we we'll just have to skip that one. Uh let's see. Meanwhile, it is a good question. It's just one of those things not totally compatible. Uh, Are we out of questions?
1: Somebody's got to have another question here.
0: I'm just scrolling down. Did I miss anybody's? Oh, Gary had a conversation point here. Um, He says, it seems to me that the question of which one, and he's referring to uh, how we play, I think he's referring to how we place the beat in embellishments. Uh, It seems to me that the question of which one is dependent on the definition of embellishments. By the same token, you have to ask what effect, yeah, and this is totally on the mark, Gary. You have to ask what effect it has on the melody. So, uh, let me give you an ex- example of that, um, and, and you're totally right. So, let me just load in a quick tune here. He, uh, is, do I have Highland Harry? I think I do,
1: because Highland Harry is a
0: great example. Uh, where, where is Mr. Highland Harry? Come on, Harry. He's in my list of files here somewhere. Unbelievable. I must have Highland Harry. Uh, Okay. Well, Highland Harry is clearly not here. It's very sad. Because that's the best example. Okay, what, how about, uh,
2: <laughs> okay,
0: sorry folks, bear with me here, Go away. Let's take Apple Comers here, which is a classic tune here. Okay. Here's Apple Comers, page one. And we're just going to zoom in on this first bar. Not that far. So, here's the first bar. So, here's a perfect example of a low-G embellishment. And, you know, uh, what is the best way to play this where the melody is concerned okay now the mainstream says that the the beat the downbeat should fall on this e grace note to low a the last step of the movement that's what the mainstream says so let's do that okay so here I am I'm going to play this it goes like this Okay? So there we go with that. Now, I have a problem with that, because as we know, in stress bay, the first beat of the bar should be really strong, and uh, the next one should be relatively weak, the way that we want to, quote, express this tune. So if that's true, why are we borrowing time from this note in order to play the terlore? Right? It doesn't make logical sense to me. Um, so, so in this case, I'm going to make the musical choice not to even start this movement until the downbeat of two, and then the terluit will sort of carry on. And it'll be, you know, if we start it there, that means the different steps of the movement will be part of beat two, uh, and that just is going to give me automatically a better musical expression or phrase. Okay, by doing by making that choice. So here's what that would sound like. And notice, I'm not doing any crazy expression here, I'm just giving a clear example. So here's this one. Okay? Um, And you can see... Um, The benefit here, by the way, this one is the same, same idea. Right, so just by fundamentally making that decision, um, and by choosing to play my embellishment that way, it can have a great effect on the melody, can't it? And in in my opinion which is rooted in, uh, you know, logic and knowledge, that we want that first beat to be strong. That's where we've made that decision to change where we put the beat. Strong, weak, medium, weak convention is well illustrated by most tunes. Most stress less. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and then, um, Yeah. This is a great, amazing, amazing tune. Very difficult to play. Anyway, the other thing you'll notice, and go ahead and poke through, like, a Scott's Guards book or something. Most low G movements, especially Terlow's, are located on weak beats. Not all, but most. And so that's why the general default is going to be to start the movement on the beat. All right? So, um, uh, excellent discussion point there for sure. Kurt says, what is the best frequency for the chanter? Kind of a tough question, because there are two ways to read frequency. One is as B-flat, and the other one is as A. So, 478 as A is good. Uh, In our our band, that's going to be a little bit on the low side. I think I'm right about this, Carl. I, I'm not that. I, I'm usually. I used to talk all in the B flat, which is four. We used to be around four fifty-five.
1: Yeah, is where we used and to so four seventy-eight's a little on the flat side. Like our band is usually at at four eighty-three, eighty-four. I
0: think so. the goal's eighty-three. Yeah, and on cold days you're not going to get that far, and on hot days you're going to go over that. But again, that's a very that's a super high level competitive band. Um concert B flat is four sixty-seven. Yeah. Well the way that the chord tuners used to work, Les, is that it used they used to read B flat when you set the tuner to four forty. So it's like, you know, uh, so you're right, concert B flat is probably four sixty seven. Uh and it's just, it has to do with how the tuners used to read it. I, I, um, I'm i transitioning over to thinking in the 80s. Um, it's just kind of hard, kind of hard for me, I'm a little slow. So um, yeah, I think 4, 478 is a good pitch. It just might be a little bit on the low side uh, if you're in a more advanced competing band, because that, that little bit of extra sweetness in the pitch does really help. Um, And you can uh you can do that experiment by listening to two bands side by side. Listen to the SFU pipe band, for example, or or any of the pipe bands. Listening to the listen to the world champion pipe band from this year and then go ten years back where the pitch was almost probably ten cents flatter. And just ask yourself which one do I prefer? it's going to be the sharper one, right? And so that's why that slightly sweeter pitch is competitively advantageous. Next question. Yeah. Less, that's right, yeah. 467 would be spot on with the orchestra if they were playing in B flat. That's correct. Kevin says, how do I go about picking new solo competition pieces? Uh do I pick them from other, what others are playing or just open a tune book? I let it come to me. That's my strategy, Cameron. So, uh I listen to a lot of piping all over the place, um, and every now and then I hear a tune and I'm like, "Man, I like that tune." And I store it away in my brain. Uh and then, you know, or I keep a little list or whatever. Um it just sort of natural it just sort of occurs to me what I want to play. Now, in your position or In the position of folks who may be less experienced, um, you you might have a couple of tunes you're interested in, but at the end of the day, it's best to defer to your instructor on that. They usually have a good sense of what the best kind of tune is going to be for you. So um, that, that would be my number one advice would be, what does your teacher recommend? and then pick from pick from that list. So, what I do with my students is I say, all right, here's four tunes. Uh, take them home this week and pick uh, your two favorites. And then we actually start learning both of them, and it becomes clear pretty quickly which ones suit the player's ability the best. Um, that's, that's a little bit of my process as to how I would pick that. Um, so that is a good question. Yeah. Uh, don't, over, don't overthink it and, uh, you know, play something that plays to your strengths and that you enjoy to play. And I, my other advice would be, if you, if you possibly can, try to have at least twice the amount of material that you actually need available to you. Because a lot of, you know, so if you're playing in grade four, instead of having one 2-4 march, try, at least at the beginning of the season, try to get two two different marches going. Um, Because sometimes you hit a jam or a snag, uh, or you just get really bored, right? If you're really bored, it's going to show in your playing. So so you need sort of an emergency backup tune. Uh, or in my case, because I need to play four, or I need to submit four of every type of tune, uh, I have at least, oh, I have tons and tons of tunes up my sleeve. But um, but I always have a few in the cooker that I play every now and then, um, just to sort of keep them going and make sure they're still there up my sleeve in case, you know, one of the other tunes I get bored with it or it's just not coming out quite right. So that... That's just a little bit of of a tip. Good. All right. Guys, last call for questions before we wrap this up. Um, Awesome questions here today, guys. Um, And then otherwise, we will carry on. Julie's typing something there. I think she's typing a novel. <laughs> As a judge, do you think a competitor is this advantage if he or she plays a tune that four others have just played? It depends you're always at an advantage if you play better than everyone else. It doesn't matter what tune, it doesn't matter if it's overplayed or not. Now, with that said, if you could play a tune that's not overplayed and play it really well, I think that can strategically be good. But again, right, I mean, competition is really about who plays the best. So, technically,
1: what tunes you play don't really matter. It does, however, give you a chance if, you know, three people play the same tune in a row. um, If you make a mistake where somebody didn't, um, one, it's going to be super obvious, and two, it's a very, very easy comparison. Um whether you played it better or not. It's like, well, nope, there was a mistake there, or that person that made this mistake, you didn't, you did better. So um that that can be a potential pitfall of that. Yeah. Um if
0: a judge says, Oh, that one again, uh, I think that's rude. And uh not in the spirit of competition.
1: Yeah, you should report them to your Games committee. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things uh, that that is going to happen. I, I, I just have uh, a very low opinion of when people do stuff like that.
1: Like, what a great way to,
0: you know, what a great way to crush the uh, soul and ambition of an up-and-coming piper. Oh, you're playing that crap? Okay, well, whatever. Start whenever you're ready. And it's amazing. A lot of judges have that. Approach to judging, and uh, they should be slapped upside the head. It's things like that. Uh, it's things like that that make me say, "It's no wonder so few people uh, stick with this." Uh, and then next, I'm going to tell you how I really feel. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. If if a judge says that to you, that's brutal. There you go, one of the reasons Rob doesn't compete anymore. Tell you what Rob, go back to competing and then when people, uh, behave in completely ridiculous ways, just, um, you know, slap them aside the head. Oh, <laughs> Gary! Are you too old to slap people upside the head, Rob or Too old to people. Uh, and then Gary says, "Yeah, Gary says he doesn't have any trouble determining how I feel about a topic." Yes.
1: I've
0: often, I've often been criticized for wearing my emotions on my sleeve, but how else are you supposed to wear something?
1: Yeah, you know? Cool, let's wrap this up. We've got
0: stuff to do. You just want me to stop spouting off opinions.
1: <sighs> uh, no, I want to get back to work.
0: <laughs> All right, we're getting back to work. Carl is the... Uh... Speed driver here. Uh, see, I didn't want to say that. That's like a loaded term. So. All right, guys, great, uh, great Q&A there. Uh, get Now, get, let's get out there and slap some judges upon the head. <laughs> no, I meant that figuratively, like, we, let's go play really awesome. Let's go play really awesome tunes. Oh, dear. Uh, this is what happens when we go too long on a session. It's okay, though, because I, I assume everyone else has turned this off by now, so you poor, the poor attendees of this are the only ones stuck listening to us. And Gary, I think G- Gary just did a play on words there. Congratulations. He says, now Carl can be the Sterling of the bagpipe world. Well done there, Gary. Excellent. Okay, I'm turning this off. This is getting out of, out of hand. See ya. Take care. See ya, everybody.